I spent a year in college as a resident advisor for about 30 uh, or so, maybe 40 uh, college freshmen. And one of the things that we were encouraged to do was to plan a weekly or monthly, whatever it was, uh, floor activity so that uh, the guys on our floor could bond and, and uh, do something positive with their free time. And, and for whatever reason, a lot of our uh, floor activities revolved around fish. Uh, we had one guy on the floor that was sort of the academic advisor that uh, he had at least a 150-gallon tank in his dorm room. Uh, that's on top of like the two or three 10 to 20 gallon tanks that he had sort of elsewhere. Uh, so some of the activities would be something like we would gather in the commons room and we would take two fish bowls and put a betta fish in each, fit, uh, each bowl and watch them kind of bounce at each other, hitting the glass because they wanted to attack each other. For freshman guys in college, this is really good entertainment. But the main event was when uh, uh, Rob was his name, when he fed his fish. He had both saltwater and freshwater fish. And it wasn't like feeding guppies or feeding goldfish where you just take the flakes and tap them in. No, these fish ate real goldfish and, uh, and minnows. And so it was so exciting that you would have a, such a large group of 19-year-old kids in a small little dorm room looking over shoulders, climbing on the, uh, uh, the dorm loft just so that they could get a view of this. The knife fish would be more aggressive and they'd get those things right away and they'd you know, suck them down and, and they'd be gone. There was one fish that looked like a rock. He never moved. He just kind of sat there on the bottom. And as soon as a fish came by, he would suck air in so hard and so quick that he would eat the water, he would eat the rocks, and eat the fish. And 30 seconds later, he would throw up the rocks, but not the fish. I don't know how he did it, but it was so exciting to see. But if there's any other fish that was exciting, it was the eel. The eel would... Uh, clamp on the fish and you'd whip the fish around until he could finally get it in a right position to swallow it, you know, because eels are tiny and thin. They need the fish to go in a certain way. And it was just so much fun. Uh, and we bonded together through uh, those activities. But there was one day, however, when I was sitting in Rob's room and uh, the eel decided that he would go against his nature and his purpose. Instead of being a source of entertainment, which we viewed these fish's purpose as entertainment for us, he went against his nature of being a water animal and tried life on the outside. Uh, so instead of being a source of entertainment, he was a few moments of frantic frustration as we're sitting there. The eel jumps out of the tank and onto the dorm room floor. And you can imagine this is obviously not natural for him, but this is what he thought that he needed to do for some reason. But had my friend Rob not acted uh, quickly, that, uh, that eel uh, going against his nature would kill him. And as we look this morning at the concept of what it means to be truly human, we're going to be faced with the reality that many of us have jumped out of the tank and are trying to live in a way that is contrary to our nature and how we have been created and, and what we've been created for. Last week we learned that uh, to be he truly human means that we were created 
that we're limited, that we are dependent, we're finite. And this morning, I want to propose to, to you that many of us are living against our purpose and living subhumanly because our affections are misdirected. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 tell us this, that God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, we could be here all day and possibly all night uh, talking exhaustively of what it means to truly be in the image of God, but if there's one overarching theme of what it means to be in the image of God, it is that we were created to be like God in certain specific ways. And if we were created to be like God, then we must love Him above everything else. And that's our first point this morning, is that we must love God above everything else. Now, what I'm about to say might sound kind of strange to you, uh, but that doesn't mean that it isn't true. God loves himself above all and prizes his glory above all else. That is clear from Scripture. It is not wrong, nor is it egotistical for, for God to love himself and his glory above all things. If he were to love anything else greater than himself, that would mean that he is actually an idolater, loving something that might be greater than himself. What is there? So as it is, he is chiefly committed to the greatest thing in the universe, and that is namely himself. As image bearers uh, of this God, he created us to share in that love that he has for himself. We know from Matthew chapter 12 that one of the scribes goes up to uh, Jesus, and, and a scribe is, is someone who, is, uh, uh, who was an expert in Jewish law. And they asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, we don't often think too much about the importance of that question that the scribe was asking him. He's essentially asking the agent of creation, what is the most important thing in life? What were we created for? What is our purpose on this planet? Now, people of the world, they may answer something like, well, our purpose is to be uh, a good person. It's to leave the world a better place than, than uh, what we found of it. Some people might say, carpe diem, the, the point of life is to, is to live it up, to leave a legacy. And Jesus' answer has nothing to do with those kinds of reasons. The most important thing, he says, is hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. Did, did you catch that? The most important thing in life, the very reason that you exist is to love God with everything that you are. In its most basic form, you were created in God's image to love him, to adore him, 
to worship him. That is what makes you truly human. But how many of us are actually living like that? Take an inventory of your heart for just a moment. Can you honestly say that you love God 100% of every single second of every single day? No? Well, what has gripped your heart more then? Is it money? Is it time? Is it reputation? Is it food? Is it, is it family? I doubt there's anyone in this room that couldn't say that there's, there's not some worldly affection that is tugging at our hearts more than God. There, there may be a few of us that when it comes down to it, honestly, you don't love God at all. You're thankful for him. You're, you're happy about what he's done for you in Christ. You're glad that, that his wrath is not on you anymore. You, you love his, uh, well, you enjoy his word. You, you like theology. You enjoy church, and you enjoy the people that come here. But do you truly love God? And it's best sometimes to just admit that we often fall very, very short of that love. This isn't just life advice from the master. This isn't just a suggestion from the Lord of life just telling you what the most important thing in life is and then to strive for it. He is commanding it. Because you are created in his image, it is incumbent upon you to love him above anything else in this world. And therein is the problem. It's not like God is commanding you for some sort of tangible action, for, for him to say as if he's saying, to be truly human, you just do X, Y, and Z. If, if it were that, man, this all would be easy. Rather, he's, he is commanding your affections. And that's what makes it hard. Even though we were created in his image, Am I coming through here okay? No? Okay. All right. I'll keep going. That's a good reminder for me to keep my volume down myself. So, uh, rather, he is commanding your affections. That's really hard. Even though we're created in this image, we were born with this sinful nature. And by our very nature, and by our own willingness... We won't love God. We refuse to love Him. In fact, in our fallen state, it's impossible for us to love God the way that we were created to. We are living subhumanly, and it's impossible for us in and of ourselves to love God and, and, and carry out the most important thing in life. And that leads us right to our second point, which is to come to grips with your inability. Come to grips with your inability. I make no effort to hide the fact that I severely dislike cottage cheese. Many of you know that. I, I despise it. There's nothing on this planet anyway, maybe they'll find something somewhere sometime that can be added to cottage cheese that will make it any better than it actually is. The world might be a better, well, besides lasagna, there might the world might be a better place if it had never existed. And the same goes for black licorice. I don't like black licorice. I know some of you do. 
I know, Deb, you love black licorice, right? Black licorice ice cream even. Yeah, man, I can't will myself to like that kind of stuff. I can't wake up one day and say, today is going to be the day that I'm going to love black licorice and I'm going to love cottage cheese. In fact, I might even eat them together because I love them so much. I can't will myself to do that. Granted, taste and affections are different, but just as I cannot will myself to love cottage cheese, apart from the grace of God and Jesus Christ in our sinful nature, we cannot naturally love God. Rather, the Bible says that in our natural state, we are opposed to him, that we are his enemies, and that maybe we even, in our natural state, hate God. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 7, Paul says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. In Romans 5.10, he says that in our natural state, we're enemies of God. In the book of James, he puts it this way. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4 says that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Colossians 1.21 says that the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So apart from these, these verses, you know from experience how hard it is to love God on your own. And the world and all that it has to offer is, is, is too strong. It, it, it's too alluring. It, it, it's, it's desirable. Now think about it. What unbeliever would ever take a scale and put God on one side and the world and everything that the world has to offer, what unbeliever would ever choose God over everything that the world has to offer? Scripture says it can't happen. It's hard enough for a Christian to love God the way that he ought to. It's impossible for the unbeliever. That is why we need the grace of God in our lives. Ephesians 2 describes our natural state of being as dead in our sins and trespasses, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, in whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In John chapter 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. John chapter 6 and verse 63, he says that it is the spirit of life. The flesh is of no avail at all, meaning that we in ourselves, we, we can't do this. The fall of Adam in which we are all born is all-encompassing, all-consuming, and so pervasive that only the grace of God changes our affections and draws them toward God. And we can only do that when we thirdly look, well, find life in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Be restored in Christ. 
If we want to become who we were created to be, if we want to be truly human, the only way that we can is to look to Christ. Yes, we must be born again in order to see the kingdom of God, but what baby ever delivered themselves? Yes, we have to become dead to sin and alive to Christ, but what dead person ever revived himself? Rather, salvation, life is only done to you and for you. The flesh, that is our our desires and choices, they're of no avail, we just saw Jesus say in John 6. Only the Spirit gives us life. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. What is the, the it that Paul is talking about there in, in chapter 2? We're going to get to this here at the later part of the year. But Paul tells us that both grace and faith are a package gift together from God. Understand that Christ throughout the New Testament is described as the image of God, not in the image of God, but the image of God. Par excellence, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, says that Christ is the image of God. Colossians 1.15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's not to say that He was created, but that He is preeminent. Because Jesus, just as Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 tells us, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That he perfectly loved the Father. And he did so since the, well before the foundation of the world was ever laid out. When we trust in Christ, that grace of, uh, that gift of faith uh, comes to us. His perfect love of God is attributed to us. And our lack of love for God is dealt with on the cross. It's not to say that we don't strive to love God more and more. But that's the beauty of God's grace, that Christ's love for the Father is credited to us, whereas our disobedience and unlovingness toward God is put on Christ. And when we trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit becomes operative in our lives so that we begin the process of recovering our purpose as image bearers. Romans 8.29 For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us, just as we were born in the image of the man of dust, being Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Colossians 3 tells us that when we're in Christ, the person that we once were 
the one that was at odds with God and enemies of him, has been given a new nature and new desires to love God and to pursue God and to become more like Christ. It's not perfect yet, but it will be. It's working toward that goal. There's coming a day, John tells us in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, that we will be complete in him. We will know when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he truly is. Notice this is not of our doing. This is all the work and the gift of God. In John 14, Jesus told his disciples that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And in him and only in him are we able to become truly human, living lives in a harmonious fellowship with God. Deuteronomy uh, chapter 6 shows us that in him and only in him are we able to do this. When he says, hear, O Israel, this, is, this was called the Shema. This was the command of commandments for all of Israel. The Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, and with all of your soul, and with all of your might. It takes work. This isn't just plug and play. But he goes on to say how we can help ourselves to do it. These words that I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Friends, this is not just a duty. This is a delight. We are being remade in the image of our Creator. We were created to love God. So then let's not go the way of the eel. Let's not try to jump out of the tank and see what life is like on the outside. Many of us have already experienced, all of us have already experienced what life is like on the outside. And it will only lead to death. But rather, let's joyfully embrace what we were created for to recognize that as image bearers of our great God, we are to reflect him by loving him in the person and work of Jesus Christ with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. Let's pray together.